The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, power and prejudices. This year, 2024, is an election year in America, a presidential election year. And so we will be doing two podcasts a week rather than our usual one because we want to and because we know you can't get enough Americano in your life. I am delighted to be joined by uh, a friend of the podcast, Luke Thompson, who is a political consultant. And we're going to be talking, of course, about Donald Trump's uh, emphatic win in Iowa last night. He got over 50% of the vote. Um, He smashed Bob Dole's 1998 record for the biggest margin of victory by a Republican candidate. And as everybody is now saying, it looks as though the Republican race is all over bar the shouting. Luke, do you think it's all over bar the shouting? I, I do, Freddie. Um, you know, the the Dole 96 performance um, was a sort of unprecedented win in the history of the modern caucus and, and primary system, which is not as old as, as many people assume. It's only about 40 years old, but uh, 50 years old. But um, yeah, it, it's it's... It's impossible to look forward at the nominating contests ahead and see how, um, even if momentum were not a factor, either Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis could gain the sufficient support necessary to, to beat Donald Trump. And given that we know that in presidential nominating contests, momentum is everything uh, because the states begin to uh, both, they come quickly in number following one on, on another. And so you're dealing based on perception through earned media and and press coverage of the race rather than through organization and ground game. But also they move away from a proportional representation system towards winner t- increasingly winner-take-all means of delegate allocation until they do become full-on winner-take-all states. And so uh, those two factors combine uh, have a kind of um, hurting effect that that means that, that prioritizes early wins in the process in order to build momentum. And coming out of last night, Donald Trump has all the momentum. Um, you know, colloquially in this business, people talk about two and a half tickets getting punched out of Iowa, and it looks like last night Donald Trump got the two full tickets, and Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley are fighting for the half. Yes, I suppose for the people who want to stop Donald Trump winning the Republican nomination, uh, last night was bad not just because Trump uh, destroyed all the opposition, but because what opposition there is, uh, was fairly evenly split. Ron DeSantis slightly exceeded expectations according to the last polls. And Nikki Haley didn't quite do enough to sort of replace him as the non-Trump candidate. You you followed DeSantis's campaign closely. I mean, he was supposed to do well uh, going back months now. He was supposed to do well, but he hasn't quite done enough, has he? Well, it was evidently not. In the interest of full disclosure, I worked um, on behalf of a candidate who is no longer in the race. Um, and uh, so I'm hesitant to Monday morning quarterback 
strategic decisions because that's always very, very easy to do um, and is generally unfair. But I, I think there are a few things that stand out that, that are fair grounds for criticism. Given what I said in answer to your previous question, everybody who does this for a living knows that the early states, the first two states in particular, are critical because of the momentum effect. Um, this was brought home during the abortive Rudy Giuliani presidential run in 2008 when uh, you know he waited until Florida, and by that point, the race was, was over and long over, and his candidacy sort of imploded. Um, if you don't have a strategy to win in Iowa or New Hampshire, you don't have a strategy. And things that distract from that uh, are essentially self-harm. You know, we now know that consultants working for DeSantis and, and his affiliated super PAC spent considerable sums of money in uh, states all over the country, from Texas to California to North Carolina. Um, the what are the so-called Super Tuesday states that vote as a block shortly after um, South Carolina and Nevada, which are the next two states to go. Uh, vote. They were trying to build ground organization in those states. That's a fool's errand because those states are won based on momentum earned in the early states. Um, I think what's an interesting distinction and worth preserving and, and noting about Governor DeSantis as opposed to Governor Haley is this. Nikki Haley's favorability ratings with the Republican primary electorate have taken a beating in recent weeks. Uh, she will not come out of this primary process unscathed. Um, she is roughly, if the Selzer poll is to be believed, and I see no reason not to believe it, given how close to predicting the actual outcome of last night it was, uh, she's roughly at even with Republican primary voters um, in terms of uh, being perceived favorably versus unfavorably. Uh, Ron DeSantis remains overwhelmingly favorably viewed by Republican primary voters. He simply couldn't convert those favorable views into uh, votes. Uh, when it counted. And, and there are a lot of reasons we could debate where those re what those reasons are. Um, but ultimately, you know, being well-liked is better than not being liked, just ask Chris Christie, uh, but it's not enough to, to guarantee a win. And I think as people in DeSantis's orbit do a postmortem on this, they're going to need to try to figure out how they could be popular, but not win votes. Um, well, let's talk about the reasons why Ron DeSantis has, uh, seems to be failing I mean, a few weeks ago when Haley seemed to be picking up momentum, people were saying, well, the, the reason she was was that she was an anti-Trump candidate. She was attractive to people um, who really don't like Trump, whereas DeSantis was uh, a sort of Trump light in many ways, even if he would have been Trump heavy, possibly in uh, getting things done. That was the argument in his favour. But the campaign, despite spending enormous amounts of money has failed. And I, I take your point about the strategy um, in terms of states. But what is it about Ron DeSantis? Is he just a flawed candidate? Is he too much of an introvert to be a successful presidential candidate? It, it's certainly possible that, that some of his limitations as a candidate have harmed him. And, and those have been well documented, well documented and, and extensively expounded upon. So, um, you know, I, I think he was a bit of a wooden, unsteady um retail politician. That's not uncommon for large state politicians. Um, large state politics is a lot about donor interest group management and media management and less to do with, um, you know, the sort of pressing of the flesh and, and backslapping retail politics uh, that, that Iowa and New Hampshire insist upon um, and that are a good acid test for politicians. But I think, you know, the, the fundamental challenge to the DeSantis candidacy is that it was a process candidacy. Uh, you're essentially running as Donald Trump without the baggage. And 
that means that if it's self-evident that Donald Trump is going to lose, you have a, a pathway, right? Because you're able to say, look, I'm everything that you like and none of the things that you don't like. Um, on the flip side, if Donald Trump looks like a viable general election candidate, as he increasingly has through the course of this primary, as Joe Biden's popularity has tailed off, that process argument becomes less effective. I think the other aspect to this that's, that's critical is if you're running a process candidacy, it becomes very difficult to criticize the front runner. If you're saying, I am just like him, but I will get it done. You know, we want the same things. We want and like and agree on everything, but he is bad at technical implementation, whereas I am good. You're going to turn off everybody who didn't like the other guy's term in the White House. But at the same time, you're asking people who really did like his term in the White House, and the majority of Republicans liked his term in the White House, to take a risk on a much less certain thing. Um, again, it becomes a better bet to take if it looks like Donald Trump is going to lose the general election, but it's not clear that Ron DeSantis is a better general election candidate or matchup against uh, Donald Trump than, or against Joe Biden than Donald Trump is. Do, do you think um, if you took out the indictments from this process, the, the, the criminal indictments of Donald Trump from this process, I mean, people are pointing out today that Ron DeSantis, before the first indictment, Ron DeSantis was polling at 2% above Trump uh, in some polls. I accept that, of course, that would have changed a lot as the race got closer. But, I mean, without the indictments, would Donald Trump be in the position he's in now? In, in, I think that the timing of the indictments was important because Ron DeSantis was not yet in the race. Um, you know, what the indictments do in a situation where you have DeSantis already in the, in the race, making a substantive case uh, for his own candidacy is difficult to predict. I believe they came, they started coming down in April and DeSantis doesn't get in until June. And so you see, if you look at the polling aggregates as opposed to individual polls, DeSantis is down about 10 points to Trump through the first quarter of the year, uh, 2023. The indictments come in April, and Trump immediately nets 10 points. He jumps five, DeSantis drops five. That's a meaningful shift. You know, you go from being down 10 to being down 20, but it doesn't, the indictments themselves do not then account for the fact that, that DeSantis, his entire polling share in all polling, national and even in the early states, looks more or less like a downward slope, like a ramp going down into the future. Um, so I, while the indictments were significant and the fact that DeSantis was not in the race at that point and then got in the race after the indictments framed his candidacy in an, in an unfavorable way, I still think it's, it's too determinative to, deterministic to say once the indictments came down, that was it. Um, either, put another way, either Trump was always unbeatable, which is quite possible, and the indictment simply surfaced what was always going to happen on an earlier timeline, or the indictment certainly helped Trump by rallying the Republican base to him, but a, a more capably messaged substantive campaign could have over time compensated for that. You pointed to the fact that Nikki Haley uh, is not well liked by the Republican electorate. However, the talk of the last few weeks, um, even if she's taken a bit of a dip in, in recent days, has been that she will do well in New Hampshire. She's seems to be eating into his lead or, or has eaten into Trump's lead. Um, 
put a prediction for me. I, I mean, I think we'll probably both say that Trump will win New Hampshire. But tell me by what margin do you think? Because at the moment, I think the polls suggest 15 to 20 points. Yeah, it's I, I, margin could be a bit tricky because that may have more to do with um, how DeSantis and Haley message the next 48 hours. I would say I would anticipate Donald Trump to grow his overall vote share. So if he got 51% of the vote in in Iowa, I would expect him to grow that by a couple of points in New Hampshire. Um, and I, so I, I would anticipate that he wins an overall majority. Now, is that 55 versus 22 and 23? I, I don't know. Um, it could be that. Is it 55 versus 40 versus you know five? Maybe seems less likely. But but I think I think my guess would be Trump will be north of fifty, below sixty. And uh, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, quit last night, suspended his campaign, mm-hmm. uh, and presumably most, if not all, of those votes would go towards Trump. Although I imagine there may be some people who voted for Ramaswamy because and and may go to DeSantis. They're certainly not going to go to Nikki Haley. I don't think. I would suspect not, given the. Uh, open animosity those two have shown towards one another and and their fundamental disagreements on policy issues. Um, The the issue with allocating votes from when a candidate drops out is that by the time you're dropping out, you don't have that many votes left to allocate. And so, um, you know, let's take, for example, if Ramaswamy, to use a round number, has 5% in New Hampshire, which might be a little ambitious for him, right? If three of those go to Trump, one of those, or two of those, and two of those go to DeSantis, then Trump nets one point over DeSantis otherwise, right? It's not a meaningful jump. If, you know, two and a half go to Trump, and then one and a half goes to DeSantis, and one point goes to Haley, you know, you're just, you're seeing rounding errors. And given that polling is an inexact science, these things have a habit of just sort of washing out and, and reinforcing the status quo, to say nothing of the fact that those folks simply either might not pick up the phone or say that they're undecided um, now that their preferred candidate has rolled off. What did you make of the Ramaswamy candidacy? Uh, I mean, do you think it was, as many people suspect, uh, just a sort of fame enhancement exercise? Well, I wouldn't want to speculate as to ulterior motive. Um, a lot of people who are wealthy run for president, and most of them don't wind up in the final four. And uh, I think that that you know whatever one wants to say about Vivek's candidacy, um, it's it was not at all obvious that a you know guy my age from Cincinnati with a funny name um, was going to wind up in the top four Republican presidential candidates. Um, you know he made all but the last debate, and I think he did that by doing some interesting things. He was a ubiquitous uh, ground campaigner in Iowa. He did a ton of alternative media availability. Um, he did a breakneck pace of events. And while certainly, you know, I think there were some people who lived on the internet who thought that the campaign was a was a bigger, larger, more potent force than, than it ever was, I guess perhaps this is me grading on the curve of I, I'll call it a vanity candidacy, but that's not really what I mean because that's unfair. A first-time candidate running a, a long shot and seemingly quixotic campaign, I, I, you know, he did better than all of the others. Perry Johnson wasn't there on the stage last night, and so I, I think uh, there's there's something to be said for that. Um, 
the the best version of of the Ramaswamy campaign came up with new and interesting ideas for voters to talk about and got a lot of attention that way. The worst version of it was sort of craven fame seeking, and I think it ricocheted back and forth between those two poles on uh, uh, on a sort of dizzying pace. But um, you know, now that it's over, I, I think other candidates would do well to look at the positive version of it because there was there are lessons to be learned there. Well, Donald Trump is arguably the most successful fame seeker of all time. Um, and now, uh, as he looks to wrap up this nomination uh, quickly, how important do you think it is for his campaign, given uh, the the indictments coming in, the court cases coming up, uh, I should say, how important is it for the Trump campaign to get the nomination sealed so that they can focus on the indictments or... Um, actually, would it be better, more strategically advantageous for them to, for the race to go on a bit longer? I don't think it matters that much. I mean, I'm sure they would prefer to preserve resources, and that's a totally reasonable desire as a as a campaign. Uh, you know, and the Biden people are out in the press saying they want this Republican primary wrapped up quickly so they can focus on Donald Trump while they feel like they have a significant spending advantage. Um, th- there's probably some truth to that. I think. Post 2012, uh, Democratic campaigns have overlearned the lesson of that summer, where uh, you know Barack Obama was able to quote unquote define Mitt Romney um, early in the summer, and Romney wasn't able to counter. I, I think that's a bit of a folk myth that gets exaggerated. Um, you know, Romney more than made up for whatever definition happened over the summer in that first debate. the The issue was that the performance of the national economy was improving during the second quarter of 2012. And, you know, Romney struggled to uh, answer meaningful questions about his track record in business, um, as well as his sort of amorphous ideological position um, on a number of, of critical, critical cultural and, and political questions. So, you know, I don't think the Biden people are spinning. I think they're being in earnest when they say, we want this over so we can start spending to define Donald Trump while we have money and he doesn't. On the other hand, you know, Donald Trump has dominated the American political scene since he came down an escalator nine, you know, eight and a half years ago in Trump Tower. I don't know how much money it would take to fundamentally redefine Donald Trump in the public imagination, but it seems like a gobsmacking amount, even by the standards of presidential campaigns. And so, to my mind, much of this is sound and fury signifying. And would you say then that uh, only death uh, or perhaps the legal system will um, break Donald Trump's grip on the Republican Party? In terms of the nominating process for 2024? Well, I mean, in terms of even if he loses, uh, I mean, presumably, well, what happens if Trump loses? That's an interesting question in November. Who knows? It's, it's, if, if a month is an eternity in politics, then, then 10 months is, is an overwhelming amount of time. Who's, who's to say? You know, I, I think it's probably safe to assume that this is the last election for both Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. Much is going to hinge on how the economy performs over the summer. Typically, presidential general elections are decided by how the public feels about the president's management of foreign policy and how the public feels about the economy. The cake seems to be pretty well baked against Biden on the first question. Uh, the second question, because of the long tail effects of, of the COVID shutdown and reopening of the economy, uh, has created... I would say, unprecedented ambivalence in the economic indicators that typically uh, predict presidential outcomes. Um, they're, they're just cutting against each other in ways 
uh, never before seen because they traditionally correlate, as you would imagine, um, to reflect underlying strength or weakness in the economy. Uh, so this is going to be a uniquely difficult election to predict. Um, and and to then predict beyond it is, is, I think, a fool's errand. Well, uh, Biden, I'm going to, sorry to keep pushing you on predictions, even if it is uh, a fool's errand. No, no. It's but fine. Biden will have the advantages of incumbency that, and, you know, the ability to do things with spending uh, and government that will be advantageous to him. Trump, in many ways, though, will be the change candidate or the revenge candidate, as, as he likes to put it. Which one of those forces, just talking very broad brushstrokes here, is more potent with the American electorate? Well, historically, um, the American electorate prefers change candidates in, in recent elections. Um, you know, starting in the 1990s with the Cold War behind us, we've seen a succession of, of pro-change referenda, if you will, in the American political system, both in presidential elections and midterm congressional elections. Neither party has managed to harness that urge or desire for change into a concrete policy agenda that has instantiated a persistent majority. I don't know if that's exactly unique in American history, but it's certainly unusual. Biden won in part by being simultaneously a change agent and a, and, and a force of stability in 2020. Uh, Donald Trump, ironically, in 2024, can in some ways adopt both of those mantles. He is indisputably a change agent from a Biden White House that is seemingly captured by bizarre progressive fixations on questions of race, gender, immigration, etc., um, as well as a Biden White House that seems incapable of getting its hands around uh, a complex and slippery economic situation, as well as an international environment that is objectively uh, deteriorating. And so uh, Trump, who I think is broadly perceived in the national press as um, sort of a chaos agent, is in fact, in the eyes of the public, well positioned to be a, to make a stability argument. I was president for four years, three of those before COVID. You liked what it was like then. You may not like my tweets. You may not like my offhand remarks, but how would you like an economy that grows and uh, foreign potentates who stay in line? That's a pretty good argument. It's a pretty good argument, and I think it meets a lot of the needs of, of the electorate. I would also say, uh, you know, a border that is secure. The great if, if Biden loses this presidential election, I think that it should be, I don't know if it's possible for it to be, but it should be a big eye-opening wake-up call to the Democratic Party that border security is a valence issue perceived by the overwhelming majority of the electorate as non-political that it is a fundamental part of the job, and that if you do not secure the border, you are not doing your job. And their scofflaw approach to border enforcement is undermining them with key demographics that they're going to need in their coalition to win in the upper Midwest. Something I'm very interested in, and I know it's something you know a lot about, uh, is what we might call the religious right uh, and its relationship with Donald Trump. Um, there was some interesting stuff in the New York Times last week. There's been some very interesting Pew research into the way evangelicals, uh, white evangelicals really we're talking about, um, identify with Trump now, sort of first and foremost, almost before they identify as white evangelicals. And the the way the New York Times interprets that, and I'm not sure it's wrong, is that uh, these evangelicals are becoming less religious 
uh, and that politics has replaced religion for them through the culture war. Uh, and that's why they identify so much with Trump and they have a sort of religious fervor to them. What do you think about that point? Well, um, I think that the idea, the, the religious right as an organized political force in American life died in 2006 um, when Jerry Falwell died and, um, you know, a number of the leading uh, sort of evangelical organizations went into um, decline. Billy Graham retired from public life, et cetera. And so I, I think it's it's. It's sort of an outmoded term that is best left to the side because when we talked about the religious right in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that that term had meaning. Um, it was a coalition of institutions with specific leaders organizing specific groups of activists and voters to to certain ends. That no longer exists. Um, the decline in regular church attendance among self-identifying evangelicals is a long-standing demographic trend of considerable note. Uh, the Republican primary electorate writ large is significantly less uh, church attending than it was in, say, 2008, uh, when Mike Huckabee won the Iowa caucuses. And that's going to have long-term effects. I think there's probably some truth to the idea that church attendance is is being replaced with politics. It's also quite possible that members of the white working class who feel themselves caught up in this church, this culture war who were not church attending also now identify as evangelical on surveys as a signifier of that status of sort of uh, being against the, the pre prevailing culture, um, even if they haven't set foot inside a church in a very, very long time. But I would say the overall secularization of American society, which I see as an infelicitous development, extends well beyond just evangelicals and, and also touches, you know, Roman Catholic church attendance rates have gone down, um, you know, the mainline Protestant denominations of which I'm a member of one have just collapsed in the last 40 years, in our 50 years, and arguably the most significant cultural development in American life in the last century that no one talks about. Um, so yeah, uh, it, I guess it's not shocking that partisanship and its culture, cultural concomitants are replacing that uh, in a way that may make the American right symmetrical to the American left, where politics has been both orthodoxy and orthopraxy for a sizable subset of the voting base for a very long time. And do you think that explains the fact that Trump lost Iowa in 2016 and won so handsomely in 2024? No, I, I don't. I think that Trump was an unknown quantity to Iowa evangelicals in 2016. Um, I think, you know, his decision to put Mike Pence on, on the ticket uh, that year was a critical part of, of signaling commitment to their priorities. And frankly, he delivered on a lot of, of key evangelical Roe v. Wade is in, and, and Casey, Planned Parenthood v. Casey are no longer law of the land. We've had the Dobbs decision. That is, a, that is an epochal shift in evangelical politics because the goal, the sort of organizing principle of evangelical politics for half a century has been not solved because now a great number of particular political fights have to be had at the state level, but has via the courts been resolved. Uh, and and Donald Trump was the architect of that. Um, and so, you know, if somebody delivers for you, typically that's seen as a as sufficient reason to continue to support that person or at least to treat that person as as a credible vehicle for other political aspirations. Uh, you mentioned Mike Pence there and for all his plonkingness, his his boringness or perhaps because of it, uh, he ended up being, as you suggest, quite a 
quite a shrewd pick in 2016. A lot of speculation already about who Trump's going to pick in 2024. I wonder, you know, a lot of people think it will be a woman. He suggested it might be. Uh, he said he knows who it is, but he's not going to tell anyone. Uh, I, I hate to push you to make another prediction, but tell me who you think it might be. And also, if you were advising Donald Trump, who would you go for or what sort of candidate would you go for as, as the right vice presidential choice? Well, I would only get myself in trouble by naming names, uh, so I won't do that. But um, let me let me frame the choice this way. Um, there will be two types, broadly two types of voices in Donald Trump's ears. Uh, there will be people who are saying, pick a person who can help you win women back in the suburbs. Um, that may be contrary to your political and policy leanings. The, the epitome of this would be the people who say Nikki Haley should be your vice president. Um, that's not somebody who's going to carry on your policy agenda and legacy after your four years in office. That's probably not someone you can count on to be loyal if you know, you're replaced by a Democratic president who recommits to putting you in prison. Uh, but it is someone who can get you over the hump today. Um, the other voice in the room is going to be saying, look, you're going to have to be dealing with a recalcitrant Congress that might be split. Um, you know, you are going to outlive this single term, but this will be your last term as president because the Constitution says so. And, you know, no one's popular enough to get that changed. And so you should pick a legacy securing, loyal VP nominee who will continue to advance your policy agenda after you're out of office and in some ways be a political enforcer on a Republican elite that remains um, resistant to your influence. I, ultimately, I, I think vice presidents can lose elections for people, but with, you know, Pence was the only case I can think of, of a VP helping to consolidate a coalition meaningfully and getting somebody over the hump because that was such a narrow victory, really drawn to an inside straight. Um, I, if I were advising Donald Trump, and I am certainly not, but if I were, I would advise him to go with someone who is loyal and who shares his vision for the future of the party, not a win-now pick based on vulgar demographic reasoning. Um, because I just I don't think that the latter will pay dividends and it will come at a meaningful opportunity cost, whereas a, um, a loyal VP candidate who will get in the boat in a row for you is somebody who you know can, can consolidate the, a, a second Trump administration rather than making it a lame duck from day one. Luke Thompson, uh, it's always fascinating to talk to you. Uh, I hope we'll get you on again uh, soon. Uh, please join us then. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of the Americano podcast. I'd like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Ferroz, and urge you to leave a generous, kind, and warm-hearted review of this podcast uh, on whichever platform you listen to it. And Natasha has just reminded me uh, that if you want to be like her and work uh, for the Spectator's brilliant broadcast division, there is a job going to be a Spectator producer. Uh, it's a wonderful department and they're doing incredible things. So Natasha can now put the, uh, down the gun that is put <laughs> next to my head. Uh, do apply, I should add, uh, for this job can be found in the bit of blurb on your screen under this podcast. <laughs>